Okay, today we will be reading through Romans chapter 4, verses 16 through 21, those six verses this morning. This morning we will not be having a exegetical, detailed sermon on these six verses, but instead we will be looking at Abraham as an example of someone who said how glorious God is. Like the very end of it where it says, he grew strong in his faith and he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. And so in a certain sense, I, I thought of this song that we sing here sometimes that has words in it that are commensurate with what we'll be talking about this morning. Indescribable, uncontainable, all-powerful, untamable, and amazing God. Okay, so if you're there now, we will be reading from Romans 4, beginning in verse 16. That is why it depends on faith in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations in the presence of God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. In hope he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations. As he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was good as dead, since he was about a hundred years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb, no unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God. But he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. Father, thank you this morning that once again we can read your word that you have delivered once for all to the saints, the inerrant, perfect, inspired word that you have delivered to us in all of its finality. So help me this morning, Lord, to speak clearly and correctly regarding your word so that we may all the more say what an amazing, unbelievable God that you are to us. Amen. So, we have here this morning a portion of Romans 4, and Romans 4 is all about Abraham. Of course, Romans is the book where Paul so perfectly lays out the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel which says we are saved, justified, by grace alone, by faith alone, and Abraham is the perfect example that justification is by grace alone, by faith alone. The result of God working on a person's heart 
to cause them to believe and be saved. But our focus this morning begins with God's work in Abraham, but then considers Abraham's response and reasons he would trust a God he's never seen, trust him enough to spend his whole life following this God, obeying him, waiting upon him, believing what a normal person might think are outlandish promises. And of course, not just Abraham, but anyone else like you and me. So Paul has just finished chapter 3 by making the seemingly outrageous, especially to Jews, statement, we hold that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law, absent those works without any works. And now he turns to the perfect example of this fact, Abraham himself, for all of chapter 4. And in this chapter, he's arguing against the Jewish way of thinking that salvation is <clears throat> by works. And if one were to address knowledgeable Jews of that time at glory and salvation by works, you would surely include Abraham, and there would be much nodding of heads. To them, Abraham is a good example from the Old Testament of righteousness, that salvation is by works, so righteous that God chose him to be the father of the nation. But in fact, Abraham is actually the perfect example of the one who has the righteousness of God by faith alone. He was given salvation by God before the law was even given. He is a pre-law believer, not having done any works of the law. So really, Abraham is a very fortunate guy and a good example, both for the same reason. Abraham was a man of faith, a child of God by believing. In Genesis, God spoke to Abraham and Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. So then if he wanted to do a common human thing and do some works to make him more loved and acceptable to God, what's he going to do? He can't read the Torah, doesn't exist, and look for commands to follow eating certain things or observing certain days, or in the modern sense, attending church or even a very specific church at the exclusion of others, going to confession, saying a certain prayer, partaking of the Lord's Supper, maybe up front with the wafer and chalice, or even being baptized. So he was fortunate not having those things to do to get to God or become acceptable to God. And so then, he's a good example to us. Our justification is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. We can be like Abraham. So now, as we continue, what we are going to look at this morning, in addition to Abraham being, by God's grace, a man of faith is, what would be his thinking? What would be in his mind that he would be so strong in his faith that he would be called the man of faith? Yes, we know God is the author of his faith, moved upon his heart and mind, by grace gave him that faith. But what was Abraham's response, his thinking through it all? He was a logical, intelligent person. Well, 
in this passage for this morning, it gives us the answer as to why Abraham would think he should trust promises God had made. But first, let's recall how God worked in Abraham. God spoke to Abraham and made promises, promises he then believed. The Abraham episode for today had its beginnings way back in Genesis 15, when God tells Abram he will have a son, shows him all the stars in heaven, and says, so shall your offspring be, that many. And then it says about Abraham, he believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. So God made this incredible promise to an old man with an old wife that he would have many children in spite of their age. Then later in Genesis, God makes a covenant with Abraham saying, I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. Another promise to an even older man and his older wife. And so, centuries later, Paul quotes that here in our passage this morning, in verse 17, when Paul speaks of Abraham's belief. So now, importantly, notice Paul goes on to describe this God Abraham believed and trusted in at the end of the verse, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. So this is the God who Abraham believes in. For Abraham and his elderly wife, Sarah, having a son would basically be life from the dead. And when Paul says those miraculous things about God giving life to the dead, it refers to more than just Abraham and Sarah having a baby. It applies to we believers also the supernatural work of God in counting us as righteous. Just a few verses later, Paul says, it's not just about Abraham. For Abraham, his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But then more. The words, it was counted to him, were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also, those who believe. Our spiritual deadness becomes life, the God who gives life to the dead, and God brings into existence what does not exist. This is the grace of God to believers. So focusing on Abraham in this passage this morning, on his response to trust because of who this God is, this God who has changed him, moved him to a new land, made him huge promises, continues to guide his entire life, it seems this word, contemplation, is appropriate contemplating God here in chapter 4 and then realizing it should be a constant in our lives as believers. But what is it? Well, it's things like to consider or study thoughtfully for a long time or to think profoundly at length, fully and deeply. And then importantly, with regards to God, to view favorably when viewing a future event. Contemplating God, basking in wonder at all he is, all his glory, is an excellent thing to make part of your life with God in Jesus Christ. 
It's kind of like stepping back from the trees and marveling at the entire forest. It constantly reminds us he is an incomprehensible being and hopefully causes us to be lost in wonder at his infinite greatness. I think it is very helpful to quote Charles Spurgeon regarding this. Nothing will so enlarge the intellect, nothing so magnify the whole soul of man as a devout, earnest, continued investigation of the great subject of the deity, the most excellent study for expanding the soul is the science of Christ and him crucified and the knowledge of the Godhead in the glorious Trinity. The proper study of the Christian is the Godhead, the highest science, the loftiest speculation, the mightiest philosophy which can engage the attention of a child of God is the name, the nature, the person, the doings, and existence of the great God which he calls Father. There is something exceedingly improving to the mind in the contemplation of the divinity. So now for us, a good start to contemplating God is in verse 17. God has revealed himself to all persons very clearly in his creation since he calls into existence things that do not exist. And we believe that it's described at the beginning of Genesis. Of course, we live in houses and then driving cars along asphalt streets to other buildings and houses. We occasionally glance at the blue sky or maybe go to the beach. And then at night, the city lights leave the stars a simple black backdrop we might occasionally notice. Some pursue creation in its various forms very intensely. But for us city dwellers, it's mostly background. Some people even play a creation video with soothing sounds of nature on their big screen while they go about their business. That's unfortunate for us since Paul thinks it's important to be reminded of God having called into existence things that do not exist. It was important for Abraham. He spent a lot of time sitting under the stars. So when God said the many stars were how many children he would be the father of, although only one natural child of his own, he got it right away. It's going to be a lot. Meanwhile, unbelievers will see creation and give no glory to God. That's what Paul says at the beginning of Romans. Meanwhile, believers look at it and it reminds them and encourages them as they contemplate it and it points them to God because a God-centered worldview is their worldview. Everyone, of course, has a worldview. Even as children, we start forming it. I exist. Look, there is stuff out there. Reality. I'm seeing it, feeling it, smelling it. When I experience it, I see there are ways it behaves. I can pick up a rock and every time I let go, it falls to the ground. It never floats. Something is pushing everything down. So I decide that is how the world works. 
But does one always draw the right conclusion about the world, say, even as they eat the food which grows out of the ground and how it came to be? Paul says, no. Unbelievers didn't honor him as God or give thanks to him. They see creation and don't draw the right conclusions, resulting in an erroneous worldview. The ancient Greek astronomer Ptolemy had an elaborate model for how the Earth was at the center of the universe and everything revolved around it. He made several assumptions about what was observed that each planet orbits in a small circle, which then orbits in a large circle with the Earth at the center. His model actually persisted since it was able to predict the observations fairly accurately, even though it was wrong. It had to have several adjustments and nuances to fit the facts, which were seen essentially creating a world who most could and did believe in even though it was entirely wrong. But the proper worldview sits on the foundation of in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, making plain to us not only his existence, but his glory. As David tells us, the heavens declare the glory of God. And exceedingly important in a daily contemplation of God by believers is not just that he created for his glory and then moved on, but he is constantly, moment by moment, active in his creation. As Hebrews tells us, he upholds the universe by the power, by the word of his power. And upholds is the same word as carried like when they carried the paralyzed man on his mat to Jesus to be healed. So he's carrying his creation, including us, along day by day. And this is fantastic to constantly remember, to contemplate, because it keeps reminding believers of his other daily promises. He will never leave you or forsake you, believers. He is always interceding in heaven for the saints. The Lord is near. He heals the brokenhearted. He delivers and rescues and performs wonders. And now is the day of salvation. Knowing intimately those promises here in this Bible might result in more of our contemplation of God. Psalm 111 says it nicely, confirming it. Great are the works of the Lord, studied by all who delight in them. And what are those great works this psalm mentions? His splendor, majesty, mercy, provisions, his inheritance, his faithfulness, his redeeming us, giving us wisdom, his holiness, and fearing him. So contemplating God and all he is is very helpful because the more you contemplate him, the greater you realize he is, the more his attributes are clear, and we are left trusting and loving him all the more. Him whose promises believers trust in, which is the foundation for their daily life. Now, the question is, knowing about the overwhelming power of God, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist, 
Does it maybe seem our exercise of the faith God has given us is often lacking when the next trial of life comes along? We have amnesia regarding the power and promises of God who is only good and just. It's clear in the word of God, the indivisible connection between God's power and God's promises. No power, can't promise. Tiny bit of missing power, big bunch of uncertain promises. So for us, should we agree with our flesh that something is thwarting a promise of God which would help us in our weakness? What Paul calls the weakness of your flesh? Then we would be agreeing his power is not absolute and his power is dishonored. His fulfillment of a promise to one of his very people who he has redeemed by the blood of his son would be uncertain to me. And yet, he's the owner of the entire universe. He who daily warms and waters the entire earth in the exact measure he pleases. So we must always recognize the chasm between my ongoing weaknesses and his eternal power. Whatever my situation, it's easy to live in unbelief by trusting God's power using the measure I give it. God told Paul not to do this when Paul was suffering in his weakness. My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Paul liked that. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. So Paul said, I'm good with it, those weaknesses. For when I'm weak, then I am strong. If the promise depends on my strength, my righteousness, or my unworthiness before God, forget it. God is the one who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. He is the one who raised us believers from spiritual deadness to life, gave us faith in Christ, washed us in his sacrificing, sinless blood, made us a new creation in him. That's a lot of power for a very weak person. And that faith works best when it knows God's power is working constantly in the lives of believers, accomplishing what is written in his word. He implements, he fulfills, he accomplishes what's promised in the scriptures all day long. At the same time, he's keeping the inside of the sun, baking at 27 million degrees so we can have a nice day at the beach. So God is my hope, as it was here for Abraham, constantly renewed based upon my trust in this magnificent God because I have faith. Not just hope because it would be nice. I hope my phone doesn't die before I get to charge it. No, full confidence. You see in our passage this morning, it says about Abraham in verse 18, in hope, he believed against hope since he had been promised by God. That's what's known as an oxymoron, like the silence was deafening, two opposite ideas telling us something. 
So Abraham had hope, the hope of a son, as he had been promised, but what he saw didn't help his hope, Sarah and him being past age. But he had more than hope. In fact, he believed against hope, since he had faith. Like Hebrews says, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. And so, year after year, Abraham hoped against hope, because the promise had been given by a God who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. I'm guessing Abraham spent a lot of time contemplating God as he lived in his tents. And verse 20 tells us, apparently, he grew strong in his faith as he did it. Same for us. Trusting in every promise of his, he can create things which don't exist, and he can revive something which used to have life, but then did not. So if we rightly know God's promises in his word and our hope is in something which has not yet been fulfilled, doesn't yet exist, but is consistent with a promise of God, if our hope is in something needing life but is now dead, then by faith we can be steadfast in hope since we believe in a God who brings into existence what doesn't exist and brings life to what is dead, of course, as he chooses what is ultimately best. Can we see its basis in God's original creation here and a God who raises the dead? So after God did fulfill his promise and Isaac was born, Abraham remained confident he would be the father of many nations as promised. So he later took Isaac up on the mountain as God directed him with a knife and wood to offer Isaac as a burnt offering. And he was ready to slay him as God directed. But then Hebrews tells us what happened. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. But Abraham had full confidence in God, who he had come to know and trust about his future through Isaac, about his thinking, his worldview. The scripture says, Abraham considered that God was able to even raise him, Isaac, from the dead, from which, figuratively, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. By faith, Abraham had full confidence since his life was based upon a God who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. Now, in our text, it says Abraham did not weaken in faith about the promise. It says no unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God. But recall in Genesis, God told Abraham about his future son. He would give him a son by Sarah. Nations and kings of people would come from her. And Abraham's reaction. Abraham fell on his face and laughed, said to himself, shall a child be born to a man who's a hundred years old? 
So Paul says he did not weaken in faith. No unbelief made him waver. And Abraham did remain confident ultimately. He's not God. He's a man of faith, but only a man. A man who believes in God, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. So Abraham had faith which worked through his struggles, but he was ultimately confident. Like James tells us, our trials of all kinds are good since the testing of our faith produces patience, endurance, and steadfastness. Abraham ultimately did not weaken in faith. John Calvin, he describes nicely how many of us experience the testing of our faith. We are never so enlightened that there are no remains of ignorance, nor is the heart so established that there are no misgivings. With these evils of our nature, Faith maintains a perpetual conflict in which conflict it is often sorely shaken and put to great stress, but always it conquers. So in the end, Abraham persevered in faith in his all-powerful God. And Paul tells us in verse 20, it ended this way, he grew strong in his faith and he gave glory to God. So contemplating God has at its, its foundation. God is the creator and we are the creature. So how should the average person compare God and himself? How should he relate to God as he contemplates God? How can he hope against hope to trust in him who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that don't exist? Start with God is eternal, we are created. He is entirely self-sufficient. We are 100% dependent upon him every moment. He is all-powerful over you and your life. You are, in fact, ultimately powerless. Yet, recall, you are responsible and accountable to him in all you do. He makes all the rules and laws you are actually without rights to demand your way as you live in his world. You are required to obey. So when you realize all that is true, best to just give up if ignoring him or rejecting him to in fact go in search of him, believe and embrace him and his salvation and then live in humility, give up trying to be in charge or trying to save yourself. The lack of humility toward God, even after contemplating him and all that exists in our experience and living in it. The lack of agreeing we depend upon God, the creator, for our very existence itself, rejecting our dependence on him. It is at the sinful root of our troubles. It's true because Paul starts Romans off by telling us that. All his attributes, his eternal power and divine nature are clear to us, but no honor or thanks are given to God. And foolishness results, darkness. We exchange the clear truths about God for lies, and so it goes downhill. 
a world full of sin and all it brings about. The Lord laughs at the wicked, at the rebels against him. But thanks be to God, he is merciful. He is perfect in holiness. He is full of grace through Jesus Christ, the gospel. Through Jesus, he gives life to the dead and calls into existence things that do not exist. That would include the unbeliever, dead in sin, becoming, existing by faith, a believer by the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ, including his death on the cross for our sins and his rising from the dead. Paul started Romans pointing to God, the creator, as the one with eternal power. We've gone over all that. And he says the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. That's a lot of power. Yes, when believers spend time contemplating God and all he is and has done for us, it does this wonderful thing to us. It humbles us to trust in foundational promises like this. It is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. That's what our creator says about us, his creation. But of course, what he always does for his good pleasure may not be the way we would do things, so Paul is sure to set us straight. But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? That is God's sovereign choice and election Paul is speaking of there. And it really defines our position before God in all things. King Nebuchadnezzar, he discovered the same thing after he was humbled by God and spent his crazy time living in the grass fields until God restored him. After all that time contemplating God and what he had done, he decided this about God. He does according to his will among the hosts of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? And when we put all that together with who God is, holy, perfect, just, full and of grace and truth, it's fantastic to be humbled, to be certain his saving work depends on nothing in us who are being saved. Abraham's God, our God, he gives life to us formerly dead believers and calls into existence new believers who formerly did not exist. Question. So when I contemplate God, how much glory is due to God? How much humility is needed? Abraham's long experience with God, as we, as we read, finished with this. He gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. Let's say I achieve great success in my vocation. I have surely worked hard to get there. But where did my abilities, my opportunities, my resources come from? Paul says, what do you have that you did not receive? When we humans are involved, how much do we share the glory of God with our own glory for our achievements, 
We never try to share his glory when it's something we don't participate in. What a beautiful sunset or something we don't really understand too well. That wheat grows from just a tiny seed. We struggle, we strive, but how important, in fact, wonderful to contemplate truths about God as we contemplate and trust in him from Proverbs. The plans of the heart belong to man, but the answer of the tongue is from the Lord. The heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. The lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. A man's steps are from the Lord. How then can man understand his way? So we started out today with what some may think is rather unusual, the contemplation of God, probably since for some it reminds them of the idiom, contemplating your navel, as in that guy is so self-absorbed he just sits and contemplates his navel. But remember, contemplating, really it is, to consider or study thoughtfully for a long time or to think profoundly at length, fully and deeply, and to view favorably as viewing a future event. So concerning God, it's actually vital we do so. Now some will say, well, the preacher have a rubber meets the road, something to take home and do from his sermon. What's the point? So I, I have just a teeny tiny little one. Maybe this might work with contemplating God and it's when you're driving in your car and you're not just going over, running over to the store and maybe driving for a while and the radio is off and the earbuds are out and the iPhone is aside and there's no new information coming into the brain but there's tons of it in there already from the study of the Word of God and living as a believer. And then, out there is the second book, all of God's creation. And so, in total silence, one can contemplate God and realize how amazing He is. But of course, no matter how much we contemplate God. We will never fully comprehend him, since even in heaven, after the resurrection of the dead, we still will not have comprehension of God fully, and we never will. He is God, and we are his creation. Even if we memorize the entire scriptures, our knowledge now of God and Christ is only partial. But Jesus saves completely. When a believer seriously contemplates God through his word, all we talked about this morning, they can be certain of these. His creating power and sustaining of all which exists in the universe. His promises which never once fail. His intimate care and provision for his children. 
his carrying us along, even in faltering faith, and his giving us a constant hope for the future, a future with him without the eternal penalty due us for our sin. And all that, all those things, guides us to a person, to the Son of God, to Jesus Christ. For by him, Jesus, all things were created in heaven and on earth. All the promises of God find their yes in him, in Christ. Come to me, that's Jesus, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Simon, Simon, I, Jesus, have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. We have our hope set on the living God who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. So all that contemplating of God, studied by all who delight in him, it ultimately leads us to look at the whole forest and say, all glory be to God. Father, we thank you that you have revealed yourself to us through your Son, and you are so glorious, so perfect in love and majesty and perfection, your holiness, all that you are. So when you do reveal yourself, we see that you are glorious. So. Help us, Lord, with all that we know, all that we have learned about this great, unimaginably awesome God. Help us to always contemplate your greatness, the fact that we are no longer under the wrath of God as believers, that no matter what may happen in this life, we have a glorious inheritance that is incomparable with anything in this life because it is with you and without sin. And without penalty do our sins because you have cast them into the sea. You have forgiven us because you can, because your son has paid the penalty due to us. So let us continue now to worship our glorious God and Savior.